Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Good. Good to see you all. Uh, So, um, I am just, one, just amazed, Uh, and and maybe you are as well, uh, with the, the kids' videos. Now, There have been a few questions about them um, centered around and this question mainly. Why is it that Pastor Amy can do in five minutes uh, what it takes me 45 minutes to do on a regular basis? And that's a fair question um, because in actual fact, she's going to cover the whole text today and I'm only going to get to like verse 16. So she's doing a great job and uh, just, yeah, way to go. So been here a few weeks now, uh, five weeks in. It was fun last week. Uh, to just uh, get a week to not preach, just hang out, get to know the community a little bit, and, and just learning several things about you. Like one, like South is a singing community. I love listening to you guys sing. It's, it just brings a ton of joy. And I also got to hear Pastor Dan uh, bring the message. And man, that guy can bring it. Uh, he's like, it's like sitting, listening to a guy talk to some of his oldest friends because it feels like that's what you are to him. So I said to someone afterwards, like listening to Dan preach is like listening to the Beatles play. It's like smooth and it's like just, you know, everything's like he's got this flow and you're just like, ah, I'm a little more Led Zeppelin. You never know where it's going to go. It could be all over the place. Um, Someone once said to me, following me preach is like uh, being on a golf cart with someone who is uncertain about where their ball is on the course because you could be going one direction and then you could go another direction. And so if you get lost on the way, uh, we'll pick you back up. We'll make it through together. Don't worry. Uh, We'll hopefully end up in a good place. So last week of Did You See That? We've been looking at John, this gospel, this biography of Jesus. It's a little different than some of the others. There's these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John has some different stories uh, that aren't in the first three. The same basic elements are there, but there's some stories that you're like, whoa, that's a mind-blowing story. And so we've been trying to wrestle down into some of the thing behind the thing. Next week, uh, we're jumping into this new series uh, called Directions. Uh, we're going to start to wrestle with experiencing God in change. As a community, we're going to take the fact that grief is real seriously. I mean, you guys, for one, as a community, you are an amazing community with the journey that you've been on over the last year or so. And even the number of you that I've met that have said, I joined this church like the week before Pastor Ryan announced he was leaving or the week after it, and you still stayed, which is just incredible. Like, this has been a journey. But, but when you have change, you have grief. As a nation, we're experiencing some, experiencing some change. It's election season. I'm not a citizen, so I can't vote. So I can't be blamed for either outcome. Um, Like, I take no responsibility. But regardless of what happens, some of you are going to be mad. Some of you are going to feel like, oh, my world may never look the same again. We're experiencing change there. And as a world, we're we're experiencing change in that I am an expert, unlike this two inches of all your faces. Like, I know this much, and the day that you take your masks off, I'm not going to know any of you anymore. I'm going to have to go back and learn everyone from scratch. Uh, We've experienced that change, and so we're going to take that seriously, but that's not this week. Uh, This week, we're going to end up uh, in a few different places. For those of you that like to know where we've been, that's where we're going. You can grab your phone, take a little picture. We're going to jump around a few different texts, but we're going to land on this one, John chapter 4. 
Uh, and we're going to try and get to verse 26, but I suspect we might not get that far. So here we go. I'm going to read it first uh, from my text. If you'd like to follow along, you can. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judah and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had left his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go back, call your husband. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So wherever we are, you may be anywhere on your journey of faith. You may not know Jesus. You may have known him for a ton of years. Together, we're going to pray and we're going to open this text and see what God has to say to us. God, as we come together as a community, maybe at home, watching on TV, maybe listening on podcast, maybe somewhere else altogether, or right here in this building, God, as a group of people, we look to you. As we get into this teaching, we believe as your followers that you breathed on this book and it came alive. God, would you breathe on us today? Make us alive. With whatever we've carried in today, with whatever weights we bear, with whatever sense of uncertainty about the future, God, breathe on us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so here we go, John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Though in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judah, 
Judea, and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So one of the things that I love to approach a text with is just as many questions as I can possibly ask. And I think that's a healthy thing. So sometimes you might have had the feeling, I shouldn't question this, I should just take it. But actually, no, questions are good. There's this wonderful story about a a rabbi with two followers, and he's trying to educate them in how to read the, the Jewish scriptures. And so he says to them, take this passage and go away and come back with as many questions as you can think of. And the first one comes back and he says, I found five questions. And the second one comes back to him and says, well, I only found three questions. And the rabbi looks at them and says, how dare you insult God's word like that? I have 96 questions about this text. There's something about that process of jumping in and asking questions that actually brings so much to light because there's this stuff under the surface that sometimes we're just not aware of. Now he had to go through Samaria. My question is this, did he really? Now, geographically, this is absolutely right. Like Samaria was this place in between where Jesus was and where he was going. In some senses, the quickest route was through it. But a good Jewish person Man, they didn't go through Samaria if they could possibly avoid it. I lived for several years, uh, a couple of years in New York, and we would regularly drive back to Michigan. Now, whenever we drove back to Michigan, I would always go the Canadian route. Even Even if it took longer, even though it meant we had passports, even though you could get held up at the border, I would always go the Canadian route because I'd learned after living five years in Michigan that you never go through Ohio unless you absolutely have to. So even when we got to a point where the Canadian border was closed and I had to go the American route, we would get to the place where it said, welcome to Ohio, and I would turn around to the kids and be like, kids, hold your breath, you can let it out in three and a half hours. Because I was just ingrained, right? Like, it's that you don't go through Ohio unless you absolutely have to go through Ohio. You avoid Ohio. This is exactly the same situation here, with just more of a sense of, like, ah, the pain of history. A good Jewish person, you did not go through Samaria. You avoided it at all costs. And yet, here we see this story about Jesus saying, no, John saying Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Some kind of divine appointment, it seems, pulls him into this place that he would never have gone usually. But on the surface, Jewish people and Samaritans hated each other, with good reason. So some of you are history nerds like myself, some of you are not, and if you're not, then feel free to just let this information just uh, sort of drift past you. But, But the reason for all that enmity was this. These had been two separate nations at one point. Back in prehistory, you'd had Israel and you'd had a place called Judah, both Jewish heritage nations, but two different nations. One had been captured by a much larger enemy in about 701 BC and been dragged off to another place. But when dragged off, what they had done is they'd moved people in from other towns to to the old Israel and they'd intermarried them. So it was all like a hodgepodge of different places. Judah, this other nation, which was, was smaller, hadn't been taken captive till about 100 years later. When they had gone off, none of that, that intermarriage stuff had happened. So they'd come back later to this nation, Judah, feeling that they, they were the purebloods. They they were the ones that had stayed true. So Jewish people, to a Jewish person, a Samaritan was an outcast. A Samaritan was a nobody. And some of the resentment went the other way as well. But both of them had this sense of, no, no, we are the ones that have access to the true God. 
You see where the resentment builds? This is far bigger than Michigan versus Ohio, even though that's like the next best thing. This is like huge. This is like absolute hatred. This was despising each other. And yet still you see this Jesus into Samaria he goes. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. John uses this particular word for well just to give you a little bit of detail here. It's this word, pege. He's not talking about this. He's talking about this. This idea of well here is, is unusual. This is like, this is an artisan spring. This is uh, water that moves. That's going to be somewhat important later. Hold that and just put it to one side. But this is not just a hole in the ground that happens to have filled with water. This is water that is moving. And there he meets a woman who at noon, we're told, has come to draw water. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? So this is the second central character. We've got Jesus, and then we have this woman that's wandered into the scene. Now, there's something fascinating going on here. We already know something about her just based on what's happened here. She comes to get water at noon. Nobody goes to get water at noon. It's swelteringly hot. And she comes alone. She comes by herself. Nobody came to get water by themselves either. There's something about her situation that puts her on that fringe of society. She's out there in the absolute heat. In this culture, you would have girls would often go to collect water early in the morning or in the cool of the afternoon. Uh, guys would do the heavier agricultural work, but these, these women would be sent out in a group, because it was safer, to go and get water. And now you have this woman who's by herself collecting water at noon. She's the fringe. She's the edge of society. Not only is she a Samaritan, but she's on the fringe even of the Samaritans. And this is Jesus' conversation with her. But before we get too into that, we're going to change track a little bit. If you're married or in a relationship of any kind, or you've hoped to meet the love of your life at some point, here's a question for you. What was your meat cute? Now, if you've not heard this term before, I'm going to give you a little definition. A meet cute is a scene in which a future romantic couple meets for the first time in a way that is considered adorable, entertaining, or amusing. Now, I'm hoping to give you just over these first few weeks a little bit of my back history because people always want to know and I can't just have that individual conversation with everyone. So some of you have asked, how did you and Laura meet? Laura's American, she grew up in Michigan, uh, and we met in Bulgaria. Uh, we had a classic meet cute. I was uh, there to speak at a conference, so I flew in on the Friday. I got picked up at the airport. They took me to the, to the hotel and I got changed. And I thought I'd go see the first night of the conference uh, I wasn't teaching to the Saturday morning. Friday night, I walked into the room, and there's about 600 people there, mainly from Bulgaria, but some from other places. And as I walked into the room, I saw Laura over the other side, and God said, that's the woman you're going to marry. Now, I don't believe God has spoken to me that clearly many times, but that time it felt distinct. So what I did was I walked over to her and said, God said, you're the woman I'm going to marry. Did not do that. That would. <laughs> can you imagine that? that? That would be seriously. That would be a serious error. No, I, I went and sat down like like I was supposed to, uh, but very close to her, like at the row behind, intentionally. Uh, and then we had that sort of oh, that thing that we used to do before virus stuff, where we would say, "Go and talk to someone. Go and say hi to someone." Uh, and so there was a girl in between me and Laura, so I kind of elbowed her to one side, and uh, and then did the you know. 
preparation and then said, hey, my name's Alex, what's your name? Or something just that creative. Uh, but we ended up getting married a year to the day later after dating across the Atlantic for, for a little while. Uh, that was our meet cute. It was this moment where just suddenly um, we met and it was happily ever after. You see these in movies all the time. This is the very unwatched but very wonderful Bluebeard's eighth wife. It's a classic meet cute. The, the man walks into a department store to buy pajamas. Uh, and he's trying to buy pajamas, but he only wants the top. So he, he tries to do a deal with the, the shopkeeper to say, I will pay half the price for just the top. And the shopkeeper, of course, says, no, you can't do that. You need to take the whole thing. You have to pay the full amount. And fortunately, just in that moment, a girl walks in and says, oh, well, actually, I'm looking for just the bottoms of some pajamas. We'll pay half each, and then, you know, we'll both take what we want. But of course, you know instantly that they're going to fall in love, because that's how a meet-cute works in films. Now, here's the bizarre thing about this passage. To a first-century audience, this, in its opening parts, reads like a meet-cute. For thousands of years of Jewish history, before Jesus, at least 1,500 years, there are all these stories about people meeting their wives at wells. It happens time and time again. So ingrained was this in the history that it would be very hard to see a scene between a man and a woman that didn't end in marriage if they met at a well. Here's a couple of stories for you just to sort of get you, get you into it. This is Abraham, a famous person from the Old Testament, has sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. Before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out with her water jug on her shoulder. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, came up again. Running over to her, the servant said, please give me a little drink of water from your jug. Some of the language, right? Even the same as the language we just read. How about this one? Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field. Just the next scene, we'll see the love of his life will wander into the scene and the two of them will happily ever after. And then a third one, this is Moses. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. And in the next scene, his future wife, Zipporah, will wander into the scene and they will happily ever after. To Jewish people, when they heard wells and two people meeting, they heard marriage. This scene, in its setup, reads like something that they can predict, predict the future of, until it isn't. Until it becomes about something entirely different. Now, one of the wonderful things about tension is that we learn best in tension. So when something catches us off guard, we actually take it in better. So you, if you read a book, will know where it's going. If I were to say to you, once upon a time there lived a princess, you would say to me, of course, it's a fairy tale, I know where it's going. Interestingly, Once Upon a Time There Was a Princess is also the opening to a 1997 biography of the life of Princess Diana of Wales. In actual fact, you could be reading something completely different to what you think you're reading, but the fact that it changes track, it catches you off guard. For a Jewish person reading John in the first, second century, there would be this sense of, oh, I was expecting this, and I got something different altogether. Subversion is this wonderful thing. This is a, a, moment of, a moment of subversion in TV advertising. This is, of course, Sean Connery playing James Bond. He was the best one. We're all aware of this. We don't need to talk about it any further. We take the point, we move on. 
but he was also played by several other people, including Pierce Brosnan. So when you saw Pierce Brosnan on screen in the 90s and early 2000s, you assumed action-adventure James Bond. But check out this TV commercial with me. <laughs> so it sets up right, it's James Bond, it's action-adventure, and then it's something different altogether. And it gives you just that it's sticky, right? Because of that, you, you remember it. This is exactly what happens here to a first century audience. You read, you expect one thing, and then Jesus is on to something completely different altogether. So let's jump in with the rest of their conversation. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans for all the reasons we just talked about. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And remember, this writer John knows where he's going. To him, there's this little wink to us of like, yes, he is much greater than this Jacob person that you're talking about. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Something about that text is weird, right? Look at, what, look at her response. She believes that the thing he will give her will mean that she doesn't have to come back and keep refilling her water jug, which of course she will because she'll still need natural water. But there's something about this conversation, something about how Jesus has moved her through this different like, levels of conversation, that she's suddenly aware that she is deeply thirsty. Not just like thirsty throat-wise, but soul-wise. There's something about this conversation that is starting to open this thing in her that is missing. And Jesus begins to un unpack just exactly what it is that he has on offer. He has something beyond just the water of this world. He has something for the soul. And that is incredibly good news. Jesus will land on this water image a couple of times over the next couple of passages. He's taken, if you think about the first few chapters of John, these very like natural images. He's talked about bricks and buildings. He's talked about wine. He's talked about spirit and wind. And, and then this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit. Jesus taps into this idea that, that water equals spirit, that somehow he has this thing to offer us that is good for the soul. He talks about it in two different ways. He talks about it as something that comes into you, and then something that goes out of you as well. In the first part we read, John chapter 4, it's the, the spirit comes into you. And, and then in John chapter 7, right here, it's no, they'll flow from without you as well. And for those of us that have been following Jesus, isn't that something that I think we believe? We believe that God transforms us from the inside out. It's something that happens to us. But that transformation isn't supposed to stop on the inside. It's supposed to work its way out into the world around us, that we are people that are transformed, but then we get to go out and help with this whole transformation thing that's supposed to happen in the world. This is what Jesus begins to invite her into. He begins to invite her into this experience of the Spirit. 
that is life-changing. You and I, we are streams of living water. But I wonder if we always feel that way. I wonder if sometimes something happens where, if we're honest, our experience is far less like streams of living water and, and far more like something stagnant. I wonder if we feel often like this one here, this thing I've got here, this beautiful, clear, Colorado water, or something more like this, which isn't healthy. One of these fish tanks is going to go to my daughter, by the way. Uh, and what better way to learn about having a fish than having to clean a tank before you own it? Um, so that's for you. <laughs> this is the Salton Sea. It's this place in California that I'm always, I've been fascinated by. You may never have heard of it, but in the 50s and 60s, the Salton Sea was the place to go if you were young, rich Californian with a boat. If you wanted a freshwater experience, you could drive from San Diego to Los Angeles and end up in this, on this beautiful lake with these crystal waters. That was how it was in the 50s anyway. But now it's not like that. This is the 50s, and this is today. 50s, today. Something happened. The Salton Sea, by its, in its own right, is just an anomaly. At one point, while they were stealing your Colorado water, they were moving some of the Colorado River into different places, uh, they tried to create a channel to irrigate some land, and the channel burst open, and it flooded the Salton Plain. So suddenly, there was a lake where there had been no lake for thousands of years. So, as this water just sat there below sea level, of course, it had nowhere to go. There is no outlet on the Salton Sea. So slowly, the water evaporates, and the salt level becomes higher and higher, because while there is no good outlet, there is an inlet. But the inlet isn't good. The inlet is agricultural runoff. It's heavily salted water. Four million tons of salt get landed in the Salton Sea every year. So this lake that was once a freshwater paradise has now twice the salinity of the Atlantic Ocean, three times the salinity of the Pacific Ocean, and in it, nothing can live. These are, the, these are tilapia. These are fish that have a high resistance to salt water. Usually, they should be fine, but now it's so salty, not even tilapia can live in this lake. And now the smell is slowly spreading, so that uh, there's times where they have to release a spe special alert because you can just smell rotten eggs hovering in the air. And at some point, there's a prediction that you may eventually be able to smell it over in San Diego and Los Angeles because it's just that potent in the salt and sea, nothing can live. It's a picture of what happens when something goes wrong with the inflow and something goes wrong with the outflow of a body of water. Now, Jesus, in his analogy, he says to us, I have streams of living water to give, and they will never run dry. What that says to me is, at the times in our life where, when we're honest, we feel more like this than this, the problem's probably with us somewhere. When I feel like that, the problem's probably with me. Which image resembles your current experience? If you were to categorize your spiritual experience, your life with Jesus, is it that one? Or is it that one? Is it this one? Or is it this one? I think every one of us has times in our life where we feel like we trend more in this direction. What I would suggest, would suggest is one, or, one of two things is happening. Either we've got to a place where we've, we've find, found a way to shut ourselves off from encountering and living in relationship with Jesus. 
We've stopped the inflow, and that's no longer healthy. Or there's something about the way that we're living in the world that makes it very hard for us to live in this life. But this word that I'm going to call flow, and you'll see why I've called it flow later. I believe we're supposed to live in this flow of life with God, and sometimes there's something in our life that, if we're honest, has stopped that movement of water. It might be unforgiveness in a relationship. It might be that sense of, like, I'm just so mad at that person, and I can't let it go. It might be that bitterness thing. It might be a lack of generosity. It might be a particular struggle with a particular act or action that you know doesn't fit with the way of Jesus, and yet we go back to it. And there's been times in my life where every one of those has been true, and slowly but surely, my life turns from this beautiful lake that has life in it to something that looks more like this. Because somewhere I've shut the valve off, and the water isn't flowing. It's either not coming in or it's not going out. And the thing begins to stink. It doesn't feel alive anymore. And yet we're told, no, you're a stream of living water. Jesus is about to take this woman's life that, that's broken and messy, and he's about to turn it into a stream or back into a stream. He's, he's about to take something that isn't flowing, that isn't moving, and he's about to recreate flow. He's about to recreate life as it should be. But first, an awkward conversation. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I used to be uh, pastored by a man who used to do this kind of thing with people, which is always just incredible to see. More on that some other time, perhaps. But this story is fascinating here as well, because there's two different ways to read this. What's happened in her life? On one hand, you could read her as the guilty party. She's dotted around different guys. She's ended up now with a guy who isn't her husband. On the other hand, you could read her as the victim. She could reasonably, in the first century, have had five husbands that have all died. In a time of sickness, in a time of different you know, experiences like famine, she could have lost five husbands. She could be someone well acquainted with grief. And she, looking for some kind of security in the world around her, could have landed with the only person who was willing to keep her. Not to marry her, but to keep her. Somewhere her story could be one of guilt, but it could be one of brokenness. And Jesus never reveals which it is. He doesn't seem concerned. He just seems concerned that for whatever reason, she's a woman whose life has become one that isn't flowing as it should be. Whether it's guilt, whether it's anger, bitterness, resentment, all those different things, there is something about her life that it isn't working as it should. And Jesus is about to create something new in her, just as he did in this woman thousands of years before, because suddenly we're not reading a meet-cute. We're reading a story that far more resembles the story of a lady called Hagar. Hagar was a young slave woman to a man called Abraham. And you can read the rest of her story. I don't need to go into all the details of it, but she was mistreated, abused, and then told to go. Told to go as a young woman who was pregnant with a child and tries to make her way across from Israel to Egypt, a journey she would never have hoped to stay alive throughout. And she ends up stood by a well, unsure of her next steps. And this is her encounter with God. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai said. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God sends her back to a horrible situation, but with the assurance that it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. I'm giving you a new story. But this story doesn't really ever reattach to the Bible story as a whole. It goes off on its own tangent. It becomes its own thing. She's given a new stream, a new story, a new flow, but it never becomes part of the big story. A couple of thousand years later, Jesus is now going to do the same for a woman stood by a well in Samaria. He takes a story with all its brokenness, and he gives new life to it. He offers this gift of spirit. He says, I'm going to do something special in your life. But, but it doesn't just stop there in this story. This woman is fascinating. She's going to press the question. She's not going to just take what she's offered. She's going to go and she's going to ask for more. She's going to expand the story into something bigger. Look what she says to Jesus. I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She's asking the question, wait, how involved do you see us being, us Samaritans, us outcasts? You Jewish people say we're not included. We're on the fringe, we're, we're the other people. And yet we've said the same about you. How does this story resolve? And Jesus begins to unpack to her that this new spirit thing he's doing doesn't just stop with individual life transformation. It stops, it stops when all people of all backgrounds are pulled together into this thing that God is doing. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She has seen the one who sees her. Just like Hagar thousands of years before, she has seen the one who sees her. And he's inviting her, broken as she has been, into a new story. That story is individual, but it's not just an individual thing. It's a bigger thing. It's a worldwide thing. He takes streams of living water like all of us are. And, and I would say he joins them into a river to a thing that is bigger. One of the things I love about the Bible is its use of different imagery, and this theme of a river will come up about God's people time and time again. Have a look at this Ezekiel 47 passage. You may never have read Ezekiel. That's fine. It's a fascinating read. It's got loads of incredible things happening in it, but this story just to me is one that stands out. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live because the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, everything will live. The, this biblical writer picks on this image of a river for the people of God and says, that is what we're like. Where we flow, everything is supposed to live. And yet, are there not people here and people that you know whose experience with church has been the opposite? 
that, that there was supposed to be this church thing that was like this. It was supposed to have this flow. It was supposed to move and it was supposed to bring life and it was supposed to be clear and pure. And yet, there's times where their experience of church and maybe to them, therefore, Jesus has looked far more like this as something where no one can live. And yet a group of people who have embraced that spirit, who have become streams of living water, shouldn't we look like a river that is pure and good? You are called, I am called, not just to this individual change, not to just experiencing Jesus and, and, and embracing what he has done for us, but we're called to be part of this bigger thing that's life-changing, that's world-changing. We're not just streams, we're also part of this river. And where the river flows, everything will live. This is the Amazon River. It just fascinates me at just how big this thing is. 250 miles across at its widest point as it empties into the ocean. And it always makes me think of just my involvement with this people of God, this thing that God is doing in the world. Because this God of the universe, he'll bring history to where it needs to go. He's been doing it for thousands of years. It will end up where it needs to be. You and I are a part of that story. We're a part of that thing. Every one of us with a part to play. You can't swim against this river. It's too strong, too big. You can choose to swim with it. You can choose to be involved in this story of God where everyone has a role. Everyone has giftings to bring. That's my dream for South and the church as a whole. We're called to be part of that river. But it starts with us as individuals saying, man, which of these am I? Have those waters stagnated? Have I blocked myself off? Have I sort of separated myself from this God who promised that these streams of living water in me would never end? Have there been things in my relationships with people in the world around me that, that have made it impossible for the flow to stay as it should be? Have I become this thing when God made me to be this thing? You are made to thrive. You are made to be alive. You are made to be fresh. You are a stream of living water. And yet, so often, our experience is the opposite. Where the river flows, everything will live. I believe that God, for some of us, has some work to do in our hearts today. Over this course of the next week, we wanted to invite you in to a spiritual practice that you can just jump on board with whenever you remember. We're in a time where people are washing hands a lot more. We're using a lot more flowing water that could continue for a while. And what we wanted to invite you to do was to take that time, not to do anything overly mystic, but to take that time to use something that's so practical to remind yourself of what God has said about you. You are a stream of living water. So I'm gonna invite Pastor Aaron to come back on stage. And, and when you look uh, on the screen, there'll be a, a devotion or, or a, a practice that Pastor Yvonne will walk through where you can just take that 30 seconds that you might wash your hands and just use it to remind yourself with the flow of water what you are made to be. You're made to be this thing that's beautiful, that's fresh. This isn't what you're made to be. For those of you that feel like you've got to that point of, ah, I just feel stagnant. As we sing, I believe there's a freshness of God's spirit to come in. If you've never embraced Jesus as, as somebody that you want to commit your life to, you can do that. That's what he promises for you. Just as this woman in the well 2,000 years ago, he sat with her and said, I can give streams of living water. He says the same to you in 2020. You are invited in. And that process, that's just a prayer away. 
That's just as simple as sitting here in this space. This space is fairly large, but right now I believe it can become really small. And I believe that you can say that the God who sees me, I now so in some incredible way feel like I see him. Maybe not physically, but spiritually, that experience of this God who loves you. So as we sing, feel free to open yourself up to that. God, thank you for your, uh, your church, this river that flows. And thank you for our part to play in it. For those of us that feel like our lives are stagnant, may this practice, this simple practice, be something that leads us to become streams of living water in a fresh way. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship app. Thanks for listening today, South Family, and have a great rest of your day.